You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. What do you boys think about going turkey hunting this year? I think you ought to go. Mr. Willie, my mom wants to, me to ask you, would you come down to our house? There's some kind of wild man down there in the woods about the creek. Now, boy. I want you to go back down there and tell your mama there ain't a thing in the world to be afraid of. I'll come down there tomorrow and check it out. <laughs> go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, that's the third time that old lady sent that kid up here to tell me there's a big old hairy monster down there in my field. I guess I'll have to get down there tomorrow and see about it. <laughs> I was seven years old when I first heard him scream. It scared me then, and it scares me now. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Karen Stolzno, Monster Talk looks at stories about strange creatures and legends with a skeptical eye. I was a kid in the 1970s, and it was an amazing time to be a fan of monsters. The Patterson-Gimlin film was showing up on TV shows, and several low-budget but culturally influential movies about Bigfoot were hitting the big screen. I'm thinking I should do some kind of coverage of some of the more influential films of that type. But the granddaddy of all the Bigfoot films wasn't even called a Bigfoot movie. It was a low-budget film based on the actual accounts of people in rural Arkansas who claimed to have seen a big, hairy, ape-like monster. Put together by director Charles B. Pierce, The Legend of Boggy Creek was in some ways the Blair Witch Project of its day. On a tiny budget, it went on to garner around $20 million dollars. Pierce would also go on to direct the classic 
quote based on a true story, prototypical slasher film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, in 1976. I don't know if it's possible to easily capture the power of the legend of Boggy Creek in today's streaming digital world. When I saw it, living in the foothills of Appalachia, North Georgia, the summer night air full of the wail of cicadas and the cadence of crickets, the skyline a dark mix of kudzu and pine trees, the immediacy of the threat that some hairy monster might attack us through our screen windows could not be overstated in my young mind. We've put links to the Boggy Creek films and the fascinating book, The Beast of Boggy Creek, by tonight's guest, Lyle Blackburn, in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk. Lyle Blackburn is a musician, actor, and cryptid researcher who explores the U.S. in search of creatures in swamplands and backwoods. He's the author of The Beast of Boggy Creek, The True Story of the Falk Monster, and Lizard Man, The True Story of the Bishopville Monster. Lyle is a staff writer for the horror magazine Rue Morgue. He's featured on Coast to Coast AM and on numerous TV shows on Discovery, Animal Planet, CBS, and much more. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, we'll get straight into the questions. And uh, our first question is, how did you develop an interest in cryptozoology, Lyle? Well, it's just kind of one of those things, I guess it was in my blood. From uh, early childhood, I gravitated towards all things spooky and horror movies and things like that. And as I was exposed to things like the Patterson film and later on to The Legend of Boggy Creek, those things really actually scared me more than horror films. You know, I used to watch the old Universal Horrors and Hammer Horrors, and, you know, they were creepy and stuff, but... You know, they didn't make me, uh, you know, want to sleep with the lights on. But the thought of, you know, something like Bigfoot walking through the woods, things like that really captured my imagination because I grew up uh, hunting with my father. So I spent a lot of time in the outdoors and things like that. So uh, just sort of that, you know, kid-like monster element of cryptozoology is what first got me interested in that. And... You know, I, as an adult and later on in life, you know, I mean, I read a lot of the books and then I just became a little more serious minded about it, just trying to kind of come back full circle and say, you know, what is the real truth behind this? You know, I've read the books, I've seen the, the film, but, you know, what is the the, the real uh, details about this stuff? And that's kind of what brought me to it as an adult. So I still appreciate the, you know, the the monstrous aspects, but I'm far more serious-minded as I look at that stuff today. Okay. I should go ahead and say that I really enjoyed the book, uh, and I really liked the approach you used. You did a really great job of catching the chronology of the stories, but also getting the people's uh, stories, like the people who were there. So this this all centers around this town, Falk, Arkansas. Uh, What was Falk, Arkansas like? I mean, what what kind of town was it before this monster story hit? Well, it, it was in some ways not a typical town. It was it's a very small town. Uh, back in uh, late '60s, early '70s, the population was about 500, with other people living in the outlying rural communities there. Um, but it was originally founded as a religious haven, so it was kind of a place uh, outside of the Texarkana metropolitan area where 
they had bought some land from a guy, George Falk, and they set up uh, a place where they could practice religion um, as they saw fit at the time. So it kind of had this uh, heavy religious overtone to it. I mean, not not real extreme in that in that mind in that mindset, but uh, certainly uh, different than than just any old small town, I guess you'd say. And so. Other than that, other than there's like a church, you know, there's like a church for on every, uh, I'll say block. As it's, it's, yeah, it's like very rural. But when I drove into town, let me just throw that. When I when I drove in, I was telling my wife, I was like, look how many churches there are. There's no houses, but there's like we, we hit like five churches before we got to the main town, which means sounds like Utah. And and, and there were all different kinds of churches, and then we saw signs for cowboy churches and other kinds of churches I didn't even know about. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, what is the the faith there? It was well. I mean, when it was founded, it was Seventh Day Adventists. Ah, they okay. wanted to rest on the seventh day, and folks around Texarkana were working, working, working. So, ah. uh, but now it's it's very you know widely distributed. But yeah, there was a lot of different. There, were, I didn't see a Catholic one, but I saw a lot of Protestant variations. Okay, sure. Yeah, and that's a perfect point. Like just you going there, you know. Recently, it's still like that. You see so many churches, so that uh, you know that was kind of the basis, which you know tra- uh, translates into that very hometown, very um, family-oriented type uh, neighbors and, and community. And so it was it was that town, which is <laughs> probably the the, the most. The terrible thing that could happen to him was to be associated with with a monster. So yeah, it was kind of a juxtaposition. But it was you know it's a good setting because it is very rural. It was isolated. There's honest folks down there. I mean these people mm-hmm. aren't uh, apt to make up stories. You know they tell it like it happened and uh, you know some really good people down there. Can you tell us a little bit about the early timeline of the creature's appearance? So when did the beast first appear? Well, the way it, it kind of came to the attention of the public was through a newspaper articles that started up in May of 1971. Basically, the, the first and one of the most sensational incidents was uh, when a family moved into town. They weren't there not even a week, and they uh, were experiencing something, something walking around on the porch and... Uh, they actually had a, a sighting of, of something uh, large and hairy, and on one occasion it actually stuck its hand into the window. They didn't have air conditioning, and, and uh, the thing, in my mind, was trying to grab their little dog or something like that. Um, and so this all culminated into kind of a Saturday night confrontation. The, the men were at home, and uh, this thing was creeping around on the porch, and they had you know, done what any good-minded rural citizen would do. They'd borrow a shotgun from the landlord, and they, they went out and commenced a shooting. And and that resulted in, um, you know, it running off into the dark, and as the men went out there to investigate, uh, one of them got kind of spooked and said, hey, man, I'm heading back up on the porch. You know, I don't see it here. I don't see blood. I mean, we, we probably just, you know, pissed it off. And as he went up t- towards the porch, uh, this thing came around and whatever it was tussled with him uh, he fought with it and managed to escape and almost jumped through the front door and he 
he was in such shock that they had to take him to the Texarkana Hospital. And when he arrived and they're trying to explain what happened, basically this guy was uh, attacked by a huge hairy monster. You know, he had the scratches. The guy was in complete shock, and that, and that's when this, that's when the story kind of leaked to the public because the doctor then called one of the news reporters and said, you know, hey, I got a guy down here says he was attacked by a uh, some kind of hairy monster in Falk. Sounds like a story you should, you know, investigate. And and from there, you know, it was printed in the Texarkana Gazette the next day. Um, the the family was uh, named Ford. And if you've seen the movie The Legend of Boggy Creek, that's kind of the climactic scene at the end of the movie that's dramatized there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically from there, there was some other sightings. And as those were printed in the paper, a lot of the old timers said, hey, you know, this isn't the first thing. You know, this isn't the first time that people have re- reported something like this down here. Uh, back in the 60s, not, not too long before that, uh, a lot of the locals had had sightings deeper into the woods in a little community called Jonesville, um, a little bit south of Falk. And so then this started to bring out even more of the story, and that uh, was just articles after articles in the Texarkana Gazette. So that, that's kind of how it all became public, basically. They go back to the, the 60s, basically. During that time in the papers, um, one of the gentlemen down there, he was he had been campaigning as a county commissioner, and he recalled a story from 1946 in which a woman uh, had told him that she saw something from her porch that she, she just wasn't sure what it was. She described it as sort of a upright hairy man type thing you know it was some kind of a, a dark creature but it, it to her it appears to walk on two legs and he cited that in the newspaper and so you often hear that sightings date back to the 1940s well of course you know of course in my research i found um, even further back and i i marketed the earliest story i know of it would be 1908 uh would be the roughly when they first started seeing it in that specific area there. After the Ford attack, uh, I think it was Don Ford says he thinks the monster might have been a big cat. But that's not the story that really stuck. That wasn't the sticky version, right? That's What it was the overall description that really became the iconic, uh, that's the Boggy Creek monster. That it was large, it, you know, man-like, something of an ape uh, that could walk upright, um, you know, in the Ford sighting, it was a little more of a shadowy creature. It was, you know, thought to be maybe seven feet tall, and it was just hairy, you know, hairy monster. That's basically it. As some of the other sightings begin to come out, people would, um, you know, further, devi- de- further define that as it looked monkey-like. You know, the next sighting that, ha- that happened a couple weeks after that, a well-respected uh, couple from Texarkana was driving up uh, Highway 71, and they saw what they described as a monkey-like thing run across the road by Boggy Creek. And so, you know, as then it started taking on ape characteristics and so forth. But but you're right, the, the Ford sighting, you know, the original description was very much of a Bigfoot-type creature. But, and, and it's hard to tell why they kind of, you know, backpedaled the story, yeah. but it it could have been because literally 
people were just lined up all down the street. They were bugging the Fords uh, relentlessly. And so, you know, I'm not sure if they thought the better of it and tried to say, no, 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 it was, you know, it could have been a Panther. Yeah. Or they were just trying to get people out of there like, oh, you know, look, it was just a Panther. Uh, (laughs) In your research, did you happen to know, I mean, I know nowadays people tend to think about Buggy Creek and talk about it like it's Bigfoot, but Hmm. I don't remember that being in the wording in any of the early accounts. Do you know when that first got associated together? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly the, the, you know, when people began to see it down there, say in the forties or the sixties, Bigfoot was not, uh, you know, a word that they knew they would describe it as looking like a gorilla or a, you know, the hairy man or a monster or whatever. That's, that was the only descriptions they had. Bigfoot, they, you know, in the legend of Boggy Creek, they used the word Sasquatch and, uh, you know, it, yeah, that may have been the first time, but it, all those early articles did not describe it as Bigfoot. You know, when it started coming out in the Texarkana Gazette and all that in the 1971, nobody was saying Bigfoot. They yeah. called it the Falk Monster, and it would be, it was quite a few years later in the 70s, uh, you know, probably before they ever even sort of, you know, called it a Bigfoot in any way. I know that there have been a lot of sightings, a lot of anecdotal evidence for the creature, but has there been any physical evidence at all? There's a various footprint uh, evidence, uh, if you will. Um, one of the main incidents that was also dramatized in the movie was a, some tracks found in June of 1971. So, you know, not very long after the Fords had their incident, there was uh, a guy that was uh, tending a bean field down there, and he came out there one morning and uh, claimed that he saw a long line of tracks coming out of the woods and you know going back into the woods on the other side of this field. And the field was freshly plowed, so you could very easily see these tracks. And uh, they were long and human-like, but they only had three toes. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where the Falcon Monster gets its three-toed um, foot profile and uh, those tracks were investigated by the game warden and the sheriff and many people down there and many people that I've spoke to and there was casts made um, then later on a gentleman who lived in Falk was very much a non-believer this guy you know he, he thought it was just totally ridiculous totally silly and I've verified that with numerous people said oh yeah this this guy you know he was not one that would turn around and, and make up a story. Well, he saw something walking across his field in 1974, and it left tracks as well. Now, on this occasion, he said it looked like it had three toes, but uh, uh, passed that on into more modern times. In 2004, a, a gentleman found what is more typical of a five-toed Bigfoot track down there, which I've seen the cast uh, of that. And uh, so, you know, kind of few and far between, but there is some footprints. Fascinating. And, you know, there's a lot of people named Crabtree in the story. <laughs> How big is their family in the in the Falk area? Is it still pretty big? Or do you yeah, know? I mean, you know, in relative numbers, I mean, the population 
there is eight, only 800 today, and the crab trees date back um, to the early 1900s and coming into that area. So certainly you have just a, a number of families that their lineage dates back a long way, and they've since multiplied and and proliferated. So the crab trees uh, are just one of those that has a long line of, of relatives that live in the area. And, um, you know, several of them have had encounters. And a lot of people, you say, oh, it's all made up by the crab trees. Well, I mean, there's a lot of crab trees and everybody is, you know, there's relations by marriage and other things. So it's not hard to be a crab tree. So it's not completely, you know, not completely... Well, I, I, you know, that's that's I can't imagine them having a family meeting and say, "Let's make a monster." Everybody, just do what I say. I mean, I know at my family reunion we can barely agree on which fried chicken's the best. You know what I mean? It's just, All right. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it was nothing like the brainchild of the crab trees <laughs> to do this, and or any of the other number of suspects like moonshiners or anything else. It was there could be no cohesive. Um, plan at all and this crabtree just happened to be kind of in the center of it just simply because lynn crabtree uh, had a sighting it was a young man had a sighting in 1965 and that you know was a very dramatic sighting and that got his father smoky crabtree involved and smoky was um very instrumental in helping charles pierce make the legend of boggy creek so you know just by those virtues the crabtree just came became wrapped up in this whole thing so when these uh, first news stories started coming out, how did the town people, townsfolk, start responding to them? Um, I think it's like, you know, I've looked into a lot of these small town cases. It's, it's, it, it's the same kind of thing where you've got some people that, you know, believe it's possible and will be happy to talk to the news about, about it or may share a story of, of their own or that perhaps, you know, their father or grandfather told them. And then you've got... Uh, probably the majority of people are just rolling their eyes and thinking, you know, this is crazy, this is nuts, there's no monster living down here, and, you know, I've been in these woods all my life, I've never seen anything, and that, therefore there must be nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have an assortment of people, and you had uh, some of the people in the town that did capitalize on the fame that was brought First, from the newspaper reports coming out, because in 1971, just right off the bat, the Ford incident was drawing hundreds of people down there to look at the property. And this is something that you probably wouldn't have today. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of mind-boggling that just a little newspaper article like that could just draw so many people. Well, you got to times that by ten when the movie came out and became hugely famous. There's all kinds of people coming down there you know, try to hunt the thing or see it or just to see Falk. And, you know, some of the locals saw fit to, you know, at the cafe they had a Boggy Creek burger and a three-toed sandwich and, you know, stuff. And they sold souvenirs at the gas station and made the best of it. And then, yeah. you, know, you know, got people that just wanted it to all go away, you know. Well, well, let's talk about the movie then because what you it seems like what you start out with, and I think you do a good job of explaining this in the book, you have sincere people with sincere encounters talking about something that they believe really happened. And then somebody decides to make a movie about it. So how does that come to be and, and uh, what's that like? Well, it was 
just the right situation at the right time, I think. Um, there was a gentleman living in Texarkana by the name of Charles B. Pierce, and he was a quite a talented guy. He had come from Shreveport, Louisiana, and he had a background in uh, graphic arts and television. He actually played a character on TV called Mayor Chuckles, and he was running an advertising agency at the time and was filming commercials and things like that. Well, when he started reading in the paper about the Falk Monster, his first thought was, wow, this is amazing. I mean, this would make a great documentary. I could shoot this. You know, I've got cameras. Um, it sounds like a good idea. So that was kind of his first plan. But as he got to uh, got involved in that and going down and talking to the, the people that lived around Falk, it just ended up kind of metamorphosing into, a, into more of a horror movie. He thought, this is... You know, this is scary stuff. This is spooky, and I can kind of come at it like a documentary. But you know, it's like it's just sort of written for him. He's just got to film these people reenacting it. So he came down there and he enlisted guys like Smoky Crabtree to help him. Uh, you know, coax the the people that had sightings to reenact. Uh, the event on film and Smokey took him out into those spooky bayous down there and got the great, you know, uh, environmental shots of just the whole environment down there. And um, nobody, you know, thought this movie was going to be anything, so to speak. Um, and then uh, it, it was just so well done for the time period. It came out in 1972. Um, Charles Pierce had a a heck of a time trying to convince any distributors or anybody to pick it up because, I mean, here it is, a first-time filmmaker from southern Arkansas making a film about a Bigfoot. Nobody in Hollywood cared. You know, it was like, oh, that sounds, just forget it. That's crazy. So he just started showing the movie himself uh, in a theater in Texarkana. Well, it had so much publicity there, there that, I mean, there was lines around the block. You'd have to wait two or three showings just to get in and see it, and it became this huge sensation. And the movie was quite well done, and for the time period, it scared everyone. I mean, I, I, I go around the country speaking on this, and I, I kid you not, it's like everybody's quoting out of the same little uh, script. They come up to me and go, man, that movie scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Everybody says that same line. I'm like, yeah, I mean, me too. But um, anyway, so it was kind of the Blair Witch Project of its time. It was made for very little money, and it went on to make at least $25 million. So it was wow. huge. Once it got picked up by the distributors and all that, um, you know, in, in 1973, it was kind of re-released, and it played in, in drive-ins and theaters all through the 70s, and then, then started being played on TV. Uh, so it was, it was something huge at the t- time, and uh, obviously made this little nowhere town into something far bigger. Well, I think people are still talking about it today. It seems like everyone I know has seen the movie or heard of it. I know I have. Yeah. <laughs> we have, yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly. I mean, I was surprised. I mean, you know, I didn't know. I was sort of living in a vacuum. I mean, I knew a lot of my friends and a lot of Bigfoot researchers in my area down here that, you know, we all idolized that movie at it you know, had a huge impact on our youth. And, uh, but I did not have any clue as to how big of an effect that movie made until I started, you know, until the book came out and the sales of the book and the people want me to speak about it and coming up to me and telling me, 
their experience with it, I just was amazed at just how, really how underrated, really actually underrated that movie is because you know for the effect it had on people. Yeah, uh, and especially I know people my age. You know, I'm in my mid forties. Uh, holy cow! You know, it was a big deal, right? So, <laughs> and I, I was too young to have seen it in the theaters. You know, I I, I saw it. Uh, I, uh, I think I saw it uh, first on TV. Uh, I've never seen it on the big screen. I don't think, but uh, it it scared the pants off me when I was a kid. Now, now rewatching it, I'm still fascinated by it. But uh, the soundtrack uh, is uh, kind of like this weird mixture of appallingly bad taste yet sticky. It's like uh, the, the sort of like two- orchestral stuff and well, Woody Guthrie. Well, it's got this amazing song in the middle. It's just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's not the only movie that has a weird song in the middle that kind of just dis- like destroys the mood. Uh, the uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, has that stupid uh, raindrop keep falling on my head song? I hate that. Anyway, but but <laughs> it must have been something from the time. I don't know, but I haven't. Yeah, I, I think so to make it sound seem more dramatic. I guess soundtrack sales probably haven't been a big part of the income for the film. So. <laughs> no, yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was. Part of it was just uh, you know of the times, and part of it was because Pierce. By the time he was making that soundtrack, he he had no more money. He had, you know, it was just they just had to get it done. I mean, he was making this. He borrowed a hundred thousand dollars from a local businessman in Texarkana. Was literally about to hang him if he didn't pay him back. Yeah. Uh, I think he put about sixty grand of his of other money into it somehow. So he's at a hundred and sixty grand in debt already, which is huge considering the guy is is just trying to make a little you know mo- local movie. Yeah, and so I think they had to take some shortcuts. Uh, Pierce actually sings; he he is the one singing on that song in the middle himself. I mean, he couldn't even hire somebody to do it. He's a talent. <laughs> it's a talented guy, but you yeah, know. I, I don't want to knock the song. I just it, it, it adds it, to it today, though, for the the time. It makes it <laughs> it it it's, it's a jarring uh, disconnect from the tone of the film. Otherwise, I guess is the thing for, for me. But but it yeah. is a catchy little tune, and then. Throughout the soundtrack, like you have these horn sections kind of replaying the that tune, and mm-hmm. so by the time the movie's over, it is stuck in your head, going through <laughs> your head. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's you know, and I think I think it would hold up better today if the soundtrack was you know if they, if the song wasn't in the middle and if the soundtrack was a little spookier all along. There's spooky parts, but it kind of goes into this what I see as sort of a. Like when I was a kid, they should show these like nature films in school, and it was almost that kind of like ah, yes, you know, happy happy vibe for a second, like yeah. amazing animals, and then brrr, okay, yeah. wait, wait a minute, you know, it's like that's true. I, you know what? I think this would be a good place for me to insert a little of the uh, song here.
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Considering the movie, um, and based on your own research, how closely did the movie stick to the facts of the case? Uh, surprisingly close. You know, okay. I mean, you know, when I set out to do this, it, you know, you see a lot of the early remarks on the Internet and what um, some people believe the movie was, that it was had been sort of structured around a couple of sightings and then the rest of it was made up. But I, that's totally not true. I can find uh, newspaper clippings for nearly all of the things that are dramatized in there the people's name, everything, or or I can find people in the town that can tell me, yes, that's that guy said that, and that was, you know, him reenacting that. And you know, while Charles Pierce certainly had a you know a, an effective way of making it look scary and dramatizing and, and that sort of thing, and making it into a horror movie, he had to take a few licenses here and there. Um, you know, like like the Ford incident, it's real drawn out in the movie. You know, it, you had to add some stuff. It's a movie, but at the core of it, it really was based on real reports by real people. You do a great job with. The, you've got the appendix in the book. Again, uh, we'll put a link to the book in the show notes. But uh, I, I would commend it to anyone interested in this topic. Um, you you have an appendix in the book where you kind of tie the film sections down to what the real world things uh, that they were representing, kind of the sourcing for them. Oh yeah, definitely. I thought that was important and something that I had for my in the process of writing the book that I had to you know make note of myself just to understand you know what was what was reality, what was truth, and then what may have just been part of the movie. Um, so you know I thought, yeah, it's an amazing thing. You, I've got 
you can go through with the movie and it will tell you the facts behind each little scene, you know, which to me as a fan of the movie, as a, you know, the little kid in me, it was like to know that stuff is now like, wow, it's mind blowing, you know? Sure. So the movie made a lot of money. Uh, and I guess everyone in the town got some of that money and was super happy about it. So, <laughs> quite, quite the contrary. <laughs> uh, you know, Charles P- Pierce was the gambler on that one, and he made out quite well. Um, mm. Him, him, along with the original investor, um, you know, he was before he when he wrote when when it was sold to the distributor in 1973, they wrote him a check for one million dollars. Wow, which is just insane. The town's you know, Smoky Crabtree was often felt wronged by it because he was hugely instrumental in in making that possible for, for Pierce to uh, get those people to reenact and to tell the stories and, you know, for taking him out in those bayous to get those shots. And, you know, while some of the townsfolk thought, hey, I'm in a movie, this is cool, this, you know, they didn't care. They just thought, oh, this is, this is neat. There was some disrespect involved, I suppose, because the town was the source of all of that stuff and they never really reaped any benefits from it, uh, you know, like the, you know, movie makers and distributors did. Now, of course, some of them did their best to capitalize on that, including Smokey Crabtree, who wrote some books and continued to make money off that the rest of his life. And no doubt that was due in part to that famous movie. But, um, yeah, the, the town just didn't make out so well with all that. And, uh, what about the second Boggy Creek film? Was that based on further stories after the initial ones? No, unfortunately, that's you know takes a dive there. Um, the studios had been bugging Charles Pierce to make a sequel for many years, and he just didn't want to do it. He's like, I'm a filmmaker, and he made many, quite a few other really kind of amazing films, and he's like, look, that was my first film, I made that, I don't do sequels, I'm not gonna, you know, do that sort of thing, but I guess sometime in the 80s, he decided, you know, he needed the money and relented to do it, so that that one became much more of a fictional story. Now, there's one scene in there where I trace that back to a real report, and that's kind of at the beginning of the movie, which is the closest thing you'll see to Legend of Boggy Creek, but beyond that, the movie just becomes kind of a, just a rather silly, straight to VHS '80s horror movie. You know, I, I believe I've seen the uh, MST3K version of that. Is it? <laughs> if memory serves. Yes, it's it's now uh, more widely associated with the parody version on on Mystery Science Theater. So you know, <laughs> that's that's all funny and. Uh, but yeah, it kind of just downplays the the amazingness of the original, you know. So it yeah. just didn't make any money at all. Oh, I'm sure. It, I mean, it made money. I'm sure. I okay. mean, Pierce Pierce got a, a paycheck on that. I'm sure he had, you know, some kind of guarantee for him to even begin to touch that subject. Yeah, it, it was, right. I guess this was more of a not personally financed, so he was going to get paid. But the film yeah. itself probably didn't produce the way the first one did it was probably what they were hoping for yeah 
Yeah, they were just, you know, going, I mean, like they do with many of these sequels. They just, it, it had a huge name, and you knew a certain amount of people were going to want to see it just because Pearson made the first one. And in between that, they had made one called Return to Boggy Creek. So that's actually number two. Boggy Creek 2 is actually three, but they call that two because that was Pierce. It's very confusing and just, <laughs> you know, of no consequence. Return to Boggy Creek was like a kid's movie set in Louisiana with fake Cajun accents. It did nothing for, for the franchise. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put links to all those great films in the show notes. <laughs> uh, so... But but I think you did a really good job here of kind of uh, showing the sort of disparity between the sort of cinema version of events. Uh, because, I mean, on the one hand, you've got the film, which makes it a popular story. But on the other hand, you've got people who this is stuff that they experienced in real life. And they seem to feel ill-treated. I, I don't want to make a judgment about whether they were ill-treated. But uh, they... It, What's the lasting legacy for Falk? I mean, how, what, what happens to Falk in the long run? Well, you know, when I started doing my research heavily uh, back in, you know, this has been six or seven years ago, um, you know, I went to the town and I walked, you know, walked into really the only place that has anything recognizable about the monster. It's a place called the Monster Mart. It's a little convenience store. There was a mural of the monster on the wall. You go in there and it, you know, I'm expecting to see some cool stuff. I'm going to buy a bunch of T-shirts. I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. And, you know, there's a few, like, newspaper clippings pinned to a cork board by the door. When you open the door, they just flapped, you know, over there, like, oh, my God, this is terrible. It's like a little display case, mostly with Smokey's merchandise in there. And I'm thinking, you're famous for this huge movie, and that's all? And and so, it, in other words, Fount never really, you know, it didn't become like this giant monster mecca where, you know, there's amusement parks, Fount Monster Amusement Parks or Boggy Creek, you know, uh, things like that it was just very downplayed there was a few things you could see um, but for the most part they just you know it was just part of the history and they just kind of went on with things you know um, and I guess we can talk about how that that's changed since but that was really uh, where it stood for the town after the, the big movie and everything else in some regards they just wanted to forget about it. They were tired of answering questions, um, and the newspapers had long since moved on. I mean, after after the seventies, you know, it was just like, ah, eh, you know, it's nobody really. It was just played out. So while there was sightings going on all along, they just weren't publicized like they were in the early seventies. So most people uh, were of the mind, you know, the people that had seen the movie early on. They're like, oh yeah, it was a bunch of sightings down in Falk in the sixties and seventies, and man, it was awesome. Nobody really knew that all along there had been sightings still going on, but that they just weren't highly publicized. And have things changed then since you visited and, and since your book came out? Uh, yeah, there's there's been some amount of change uh, that's happened. I mean, once uh, once the book came out, and, and mind you, I had to, you know, when I started doing this, they, the town was very skeptical of me coming up there saying, I'm going to write a book about the whole history and I'm going to, I'm going to uh, approach this seriously. I'm not 
saying, you know, I'm not judging what anybody saw. I just want to know what you believe you saw. And I want to know something about this town that's connected to this. Everybody knows Falk, and they've seen it in the movie, but, you know, who are the people of Falk, you know, and what has happened with all this? And so, um, you know, and it's slowly but surely, as I kept going back up there, the, the people were opening up, and people realized that, okay, this guy's not going away, and he sounds, you know, somewhat intelligent and serious um, and they began to share the stories and uh, so by the time the book came out I did have some uh, you know level of the respect I suppose and uh, many of the people I'd worked with a guy who runs a little museum there the Miller County Historical Society Museum you know he he read the book and they were very be happy with it because I did talk about the town, who founded it. You know, we'll give you know set up the background for this this crazy story, mm-hmm. and so at that point, uh, the book actually was dr- beginning to draw more people and re-energize the interest in this thing. And if, especially because, like I mentioned before, a lot of the sightings that had happened were not very highly publicized. You know, some of them were on some of the Bigfoot research websites. Some of them had been told to, like, the sheriff or people that worked there. And I collected all those up and put them in the book and uh, said, hey, you know, this is still a, this is not a, I'm not writing a history book here. I'm writing an ongoing story. And so that that got them fired up down there. And the Monster Mart uh, was under new ownership and since then, the Monster Mart does actually look uh, like you might think it would look. It's got a huge Bigfoot thing on the top of it. It's very well done. There's a lot more gifts and T-shirts. Um, they've they've instituted a Boggy Creek Festival down there that um, <laughs> that I you know was help you know help them jumpstart um, to bring people to the area and you know just kind of celebrate the legend and. Um, bring some, you know, some people to the town and give them something to see while they're there. And so there, it's really been a resurgence in this. And that that coupled with several television shows we did. We did a Falk Monster episode on Monsters and Mysteries in America. They did a Return to Boggy Creek on uh, episode on Finding Bigfoot, which was huge because Finding Bigfoot has a huge following of younger generation of Bigfooters. And many of those who probably had never heard of the legend of boggy creek so when those guys go down there and say this was a huge influence on us look at this spooky movie look at this spooky place all of a sudden you know a whole another generation is going oh wow what is this you know and got into it and so that's uh it's really a kind of a different thing that's going on in fact we're next week i'm going down there to film a documentary there's actually being a documentary based uh, or that covers the whole story sort of like my book does so um there's just new things going on all the time now well that's neat Who, who's yeah. doing the documentary do you have any idea what it'll be out uh no uh it's well it's a, a film company out of ohio called small town monsters and they they kind of approach the thing like i do with these um monster cases you know that uh, to try to tell the story behind the the town, the people, uh, what, what was being seen, the legacy of it, and uh, they did. They've done in two films so far um, on other monsters, uh, Minerva, Ohio. They did one on on Whitehall, the Beast of Whitehall, uh, up in New York, and the third one they wanted to do was, of course, Boggy Creek, and 
they sought my assistance in that. And I actually, I'm a co-producer just simply because it, it just, you know, I've already done all the research. I've already, you know, uh, I, I can be, you know, I can assist them in that way. And of course I'm going to be on camera and I'm going to narrate the whole thing. So it's, well, great. Well, you know. Keep us apprised uh, of the progress. Let us know when it's available. Yeah. 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 It, 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 it's probably going to be, you know, early next year, I would say, before it comes out. But, yeah, it's a really cool thing. And, again, it just sort of shows you this level of ongoing interest in that. And I think it's the logical step between I've got my book, it tells the history, but you know, there's a certain amount of people that would like to see the visuals behind all that, and that's what we're going to bring in the in the Boggy Creek Monster film. So um, are, are there people still seeing things today, people still seeing monsters in, in the Falk area? Or what was the most recent sighting that you're aware of? I mean, I know you, you in the book you talk about some up in the 90s. Yeah, my book goes through uh, 2010. That was when I left off and turned in the manuscript, and that, that one had happened very, very close uh, to when I turned it in. Since then, there have been several dramatic sightings. There was one uh, the following year in 2011, um, that, that we did feature on Monsters and Mysteries in America, and that was a real story from a, from a girl, and I investigated that case. Uh, the most recent one that I've investigated that I, that I hold is highly credible was from November of 2014, and basically there was a woman who lived in that area a little bit further up the Sulphur River, but um, she was driving at 10 a.m. one morning and had to actually do a little U-turn on this little, little old country road. And when she turned around, there was something standing right there in the middle of the road. And she said at first she thought maybe it's a, it's a kid in a costume or whatever, but this thing just looked at her and then it ran off back into the woods and she felt like it was a real animal. And I investigated that you know, as far as I could, I interviewed the woman. I went to the property where the thing was seen. I talked to the people that lived there and looked into the possibilities of hoax. And I'm quite sure the woman was telling the truth. She definitely saw something. And so, uh, you know, that was a little, little over a year ago. So we're still having some, you know, in my opinion, uh, unexplainable sightings. So you've said that the book was mainly to record the history and the folklore of everything that's happened. Uh, but over the course of researching and writing the book, did your opinions change about any of the claims? You know, as I researched the book, I certainly went from the standpoint of thinking mostly I'm going to write about sightings in the past to thinking, wow, there is sightings that just, you know, occurred in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s that kept going on and on, you know, uh, that was amazing. And also, um, just the level of credibility on some of the sightings, you know, I mean, certainly in all these cases, there's some that you have very little detail. It's a secondhand story. You know, you can't really, you know, you just say this, what happened, but then there's, there's some where I'm, I'm actually interviewing that very person that said this happened. So, that was something that was great to where I can offer my own insight into it instead of simply retelling old stuff or, or, or secondhand or anything like that. So that opened my mind definitely to just to this, uh, I guess, a conclusion of 
I just can't explain it. These, you know, these people aren't lying. You know, they're, uh, you know, they saw something. I can't say exactly what that was, but something happened to this person, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's repeating itself with other people. And you know, I I, there, I mean, there was some people coming to tell me stories that I I didn't find any credibility in their story, and I didn't include those. I only included what I thought were, you know, were good ones. So that kind of opened my mind to this thing of it is an ongoing phenomenon. Well, you know, it, it, we're a skeptical show, but the, the, the bottom line is that people see things. I, I, mm-hmm. People experience things, and even as a skeptic, I, I don't know what I would do if I saw, you know, what these people have seen. And I, I suspect at this point in my life, I would probably doubt my own experience. I would be one of those, I can't believe what I saw kind of people. But, but it's okay to say that you don't know as well. Uh, but it's absolutely okay to say you don't know. But it's also okay to acknowledge these people had strange experiences. I mean, that's, you know, that's what they had. And I, I think always, it's very valuable to record them absolutely. as well as no, no, your book's tremendously valuable. I think it's really great for you to collect all this stuff together. So, um, I, you know, it, it, it's not for me to say that there's no monster living in Falk. What it is for me to say is uh, I think it's great that you've collected these, these stories together and mm-hmm. and you've also presented this really interesting cultural picture of of how a small town is affected by these strange events and how it's affected by the incursion of uh, this sort of the capitalistic money making machine of Hollywood, <laughs> not really Hollywood, but you know what I mean. The the sort of movie making experience, how that has transformed the uh, well. How it's transformed the name of their city, whether it's transformed their city is a different question, but it's had a big impact uh, that that's that's going to last for years and years. I don't know how mm-hmm. long it'll last, but it's, it's going to affect it for a long time. In fact, when I went to Falk in 2013, it was, as you described it, in the it's now. It's, it's the big monster on the top uh, at the Monster Mart, and I thought they had a nice little collection of uh, Bigfoot stuff there, and... Um, I you want know, to get there now. I haven't been there. Yet. It was what I wanted to see. It was it was pretty much exactly what I wanted to see when I got there. So thanks for helping with change. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could help make that into you know everybody's vision of Falk because you know it, it still blows my mind is the little kid who saw that movie and and it, you know I live I live three hours from Falk and I had been in all kinds of little small towns and when I saw that movie it just flipped me right out. I thought. That's the scariest thing I've ever seen. And so for me, that little kid and that fascination is still in me to have participated in any form or fashion to, you know, further the story of this kind of (laughs) blows my mind. It's very surreal to go to the town and people go, hey, Lyle, you know, the mayor's like waving at me or whatever. (laughs) It's it just kind of blows my mind. And. But I did set, I think it, it's a result of me trying to set out. I am just simply trying to tell the story. I'm not selling people on anything that I can't back up. You know, I, I find it fascinating, the story unto itself, whether the creature is real or not real. It's still a great story, and that's kind of how I approach the oh, my books. Uh, you know, I didn't mention we should talk about how great the artwork is in the book. Good job on that. Oh, the illustrations, yeah, they're great. Those are really, really dramatic illustrations. Where did oh, you find that? Where, where did you find the illustrator? Who is that? Uh, the guy that did the interior illustrations is his name is Dan Brereton. He is a, a quite famous comic book artist, and he had done he had done uh, he's done the covers for my band's albums, 
and I told him I'm writing this book. I, and, you know, here's the deal. And uh, he's, you know, he thought it'd be fun and and did them. So he's, and let me tell you, those things are that's nothing for him. I mean, just these amazing paintings, you know. Um, so, but he did a great job. And what I wanted to illustrate with those illustrations is kind of like a crime scene drawing. This is kind of the description of what the person said they saw to kind of bring it to life a little bit like the movie. And uh, But he, he didn't do the cover. That was done by Justin Osborne, who he had done another cover of a kind of a Bigfoot creature I saw on a, on a CD, and I, I was blown away. I was like, dude, you got to do my cover. It kind of had that 70s vibe. I was like, that's, that's what I need here. And so, the, yeah, my artists are just amazing. Yeah, they're oh. very different to all other depictions of uh, similar creatures. Yeah, in the the uh, the original Boggy Creek movie itself also had some amazing artwork. That was actually uh, a Ralph McQuarrie, uh, the poster for that. That is a, I mean, that's a very very iconic mo- monster movie poster. I love that. Right, <laughs> Ralph McQuarrie, which most people don't know, he's the one that conceptualized all the Star Wars characters. Exactly. So for the nerds who were already cheering, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think I was one of the last people to interview McQuarrie, um, and because I, I asked him how you know how the process for creating that poster went about, you know, um, and, and you know did. Was Chew- his rendering of Chewbacca in any way, fashion, or form influenced by the Fountain Monster? Because I thought that would be the coolest. Oh thing. yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, that's in the book. The I won't exactly. tell the answer. But, <laughs> exactly. Um, Read the book. Great stuff. <laughs> and I actually hunted down that that the oil painting, the actual real painting. It took me years to find it, but I found it was able to get it and actually restore it to the Charles Pierce estate and which they're trying to have it placed in a museum somewhere. So, Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I, it was hanging on my wall in my house there for a short period of time. Are you serious? That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it was like, again, like how does, how does this even happen? How do I have that actual oil painting? I don't believe I would have ever been able to give that away. I don't know. It would have to just stay there, you know? Yeah. That would be, yeah. That would be really hard. So, so you've written for Rue Morgue. Uh, Was that also monster related stuff? Yes, I'm sort of the uh, liaison between monster movies and cryptozoology, and that's that's what I specialize in the in the magazine because I mean there's quite a few, especially now. It's just more and more of these horror films being made about you know Bigfoot and cryptozoology creatures, and I I kind of understand the phenomenon from the cryptozoology side. I don't kind of I do and. And uh, as well as a fan of horror movies, so it, it kind of is right up my alley to to cover those things for the magazine. Yeah, I'm trying to. Uh, so on the show, we've talked about how that um, there are obviously there's plenty of cases where monster stories from real life become movies. This is a great example. But there's also we think uh, as skeptics a lot. <laughs> there's cases where movies have sort of inspired monsters, and I've started calling those scripteds. Instead of Christmas. So, <laughs> yeah. so, oh, that's awesome. You can help yeah. spread that. Take it. Run with it. <laughs> no, well, and I, I agree. And I've, I've looked into a few of those things myself where I've tried to figure out which came first, you know. And yeah, it's really it's, tricky. Yeah. It's something you got to look at in these cases. You have to look at outside influences. You got to look at it all just to try to discern the truth. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll have to have you on the show again about uh, some other creatures then. Certainly. Yeah, yeah we, we should come back and talk about your other book, which we can go ahead and put a link to the show notes uh, for Lizard mm-hmm. Man, the true story of the Bishop Phil Monster. Yeah, I mean, that's another one that, you know, it has a lot of the same elements as the Fout Monster case. It just doesn't have a big movie yeah, associated it's, with it. Yeah, it's, it's not on the same scale. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is a movie. It's the same scale. I like it. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, well, there, let me tell you, there is a movie about it, but it's not one that it's going to draw people to Bishopville. It's quite ter- <laughs> terrible. It's not going to even, you know, dr- barely draw me to watch it. But, oh, well. uh, but yeah, it's it's another fascinating phenomenon, especially with a sort of a creature from the Black Lagoon type of a, a cryptid, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, just in closing, we there's a question that we always like to ask our guests, and uh, that is, Lyle, what's your favorite monster? Well, I say, I suppose... Is this a cryptozoology monster? Or is whatever monster Any, you anything, want. anything, anything you, you see is a monster that it could is be your the, favorite. One of the things from the where the wild things are. It could be <laughs> whatever you want. I mean, I would have to say the fountain monster. I, I think that's that is. It literally did capture me as a, a child and my imagination, and as an adult, in some ways, has kind of affected my whole entire life. And so, there's a certain uh, love for that so-called monster, and you know that I have, and will, and will always have. You know, I'm just uh, I'm the biggest geek about that film and about the history of it and everything else. So I think it would have to uh, naturally be at the top of my list. Great, good answer. That had to be your answer. <laughs> <laughs> like people go, "What's your favorite uh, movie, horror film?" I'm like, what am I going to say? <laughs> say? It's the Legend of Boggy Creek. I spent like years, like hunting down paintings and writing books. It, you know, I'm, I'm just into that. <laughs> I have the same sort of fascination with John Carpenter's The Thing. It's just, yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed. It's ridiculous. So. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a great movie. I it agree. is a that's great a, movie. It's, it's awesome. I love it. I, my my dad had shown me the original when I was a kid. I loved all the black and whites, and then that came out. It like kicked it up to just a whole another level of. That was a pretty scary movie. Yeah, actually, yeah. My, my son's fourteen, and he's he's been pestering me to watch it. And I was like, mm, not yet. <laughs> so yeah. just not not yet. because so, that's some nightmare fuel. Uh, <laughs> All right, Lyle. Sure, thank yeah. thank you yeah. so much for spending yeah. some time with us talking about the Boggy Creek Monster. Thank you. That was fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. I enjoy talking Great about it. Great story. Thanks so, so much for having me. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You just heard me, Blake Smith, and Dr. Karen Stolzno interviewing author Lyle Blackburn about his book, The Beast of Boggy Creek. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like the opinions of Skeptic Magazine, why not creep off down to the swamp, wait till twilight, and then pop open the Skeptic app on your iPod or Android device so that you can read Junior Skeptic while you wait to see if any swamp boogers show up. The amazing meeting conferences are no more, but this October, the Center for Skeptical Inquiry, CSI, formerly PSYCOP, will be hosting what sounds like an epic skeptic conference in Las Vegas. Barry, I hear CSI is having a fabulous Las Vegas trip coming up this October. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
Yes, SciCon Las Vegas. It's our fourth SciCon conference. It's at the Excalibur Hotel, which have you are you familiar no, with? No, I'm, I've never. I'm not familiar. Well, That's for rich people. I'm <laughs> I'm poor, so. But it's the big castle. We have a joust tournament. Can I be a princess? You you could be a princess. There's <laughs> kings and horses and jousting tournaments and magicians. It's going to be great fun. We have workshops. There's five workshops, including things like investigative techniques, skeptical activism, mind reading. How to, We're going to teach you how to read people's minds. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> well, there's some people's minds I don't want to read. But, okay. So, yeah, we got all these events going on. I mean, there's okay. costume party. Skeptics love to dress up in costumes. I don't know why. <laughs> we have two magic shows, Jamie Swiss and Banachek, who works with Chris Angel. Oh, wow. Uh, so Banachek's going to be there. He's a wonderful mentalist. Uh, there's there's just so much stuff going on. The workshops, we have a Houdini seance. We're going to bring Houdini back from the dead, finally. He's never come back before, but this year we, we have a feeling. Uh, uh, very, well, very, who's even going to be there? You haven't even gotten to the speakers. Oh, the, oh, yeah. the speakers. This yeah. Is the, the, the main part of the whole thing. Well, right. The, the, it's the main part. Well, we have speakers like Michael Mann on climate change, Kevin Folta on GMOs. Elizabeth Loftus talking about her memory research. Oh, uh, cool. Jill Tarter talking about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There's Eugenie Scott. There's Lawrence Krauss. Oh, Richard wow. Dawkins. And James Randi's going to be there. I mean, I've been talking five minutes. I haven't mentioned Randy yet. James Randi's going to oh, be there. Oh, that's awesome. And one person I'm really looking forward to seeing is Olivia Newton-John. She, I mean, she's not going to be at the conference, though, right? No, but she's in Vegas that weekend. <laughs> Barry, I don't think she's going to come to the conference. Well, she might not come to the conference, but she's just near there. So you know, who knows? You're not going to leave the conference to go find Olivia Newton-John, Barry. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you, if you had the opportunity to see Olivia Newton-John, wouldn't you take it? No. No, no. I would go to the awesome conference you just I'm told me about. Both. I'm going to do both. I'm going to be in two places right at once. Right after you invent time travel. I'm going to be in two places at once. Don't tell the skeptics I said that. <laughs> Can we invite her to the karaoke anyway? Barry, let's just say I don't think she's going to be hopelessly devoted to coming to karaoke but she is the one that i want all right if you guys want to come on out to the conference you can register at csiconference.org you guys should register we're all gonna be there it's gonna be really fun don't miss out there's a castle (laughs) castle. that sounds fun monster talk theme music is by peach stealing monkeys thanks again for listening For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skepti, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. Falk, Falk, Falk. Yeah. <laughs> what the Falk? Uh, yeah. That's actually, oh, you see, that's what I want to call this episode, is what the Falk. Great minds. <laughs> Inviting 
nobody sees the flowers bloom but me. I'm no singing. Oh, go and get a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> 